Let's talk about consulting. The good, the bad, the highs, and the challenges. Each client project is a journey. We already know its destination. It's about getting there. This is Consult. Welcome back to Consult. I've got a great interview this week with Manton Reese, well-known developer, well-known podcaster. I want to remind everyone to leave reviews on iTunes if you enjoy the podcast. That can really help us out in terms of popularity. And if you have any comments about the podcast, please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. I'd love to hear your comments, love to hear what's been working, what's not been working for you, and how you think we can take the podcast to the next level. Without further ado, Here's my interview with Manton Reese. So I'm really excited this week to have Manton Reese, a man who in the indie developer community really needs no introduction on the podcast. Manton is the owner of Riverfold Software. He's the co-host of the very popular Core Intuition podcast, which is probably where most listeners know you from. But if you could just give us a quick introduction about who you are and where you come from, that would be great. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Uh, as you said, I have a, a little small indie company called Riverfold Software, and when I used to introduce myself, I used to always say, I have that, but then I also have this regular job that I've been working for the last 14 years, and it was kind of a complicated uh, introduction to give people, but now it's a little simpler. That's all I'm doing as of about a month ago. I'm doing my own company where I have some Mac and iPhone apps and doing some client work and consulting and stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about on the show. And... Uh, that's that's what I'm doing right now. I'm kind of a long-time Mac programmer. Started 20 years ago, probably about, in high school. Um, getting started, having my first Mac back in the old days of, you know, System 6 and 7 before the transition to, you know, after the next acquisition. Sure, yeah. I remember System 6 and 7. I grew up on them. Um, so when did you decide you wanted to be a programmer? Let's go way back. What was the impetus for getting you into programming? Yeah, I mean, I I got I was fascinated with the Mac, and I knew when I wanted to have my first computer, it needed to be one of those. I I had friends who had, you know, whatever Apple II, Commodore, different things that I kind of was familiar with, um, and they I guess probably got into programming before I did. But really, when I had got my first computer, which was the Mac Classic. You know, small little black and white Mac that looked kind of like the original Mac. Um, it was a little more powerful, but not much. Um, it was actually fairly underpowered uh, compared to other Macs from that era. But I just loved it, and I just kind of fell into programming for it. You know, I, I had a took a Pascal class, and then from there, just kind of taught myself stuff. Just you know, devoured every book on programming, all the old Inside Mac volumes about how to how to write to the toolbox and make, you know, graphical user interfaces and stuff. And then taught myself C and just kind of work, just kind of fell into it. Just, just seemed so interesting to create these types of apps that had the menus and buttons and everything we take for granted out. But I just, just fell into it and was really fascinated with it. So a lot of people know you as the host of Core Intuition. A lot of people know Riverfold Software. And you've been blogging about how you've transitioned into being full-time indie but maybe not everyone knows you as Manton Reese Consultant. So can you tell us a little <laughs> bit of background about that, how, how you became um, a consultant? 
Sure. So it's funny, as I was thinking about this, I actually have off and on over the years done some consulting work. And it was actually, it was almost 10 years ago now, maybe eight or nine years ago, that uh, I have a client that I still do work for sometimes that had approached me about porting uh, a Windows app to the Mac. And I, I guess he had just read maybe one of my blog posts or something. I'm not really sure how he found me exactly, but he reached out and we talked about it and, and it was something that I was really interested in. And I helped him with that. So I, I have, over the years, I've done a little bit of that kind of stuff, like working with him off and on over the years. But really, lately, I've sort of embraced <laughs> client work and consulting, mostly because when I realized it was time for me to just do full-time, you know, my own company, I knew that I couldn't really sustain everything just for my own apps. And so... For a long time, I was resistant about doing a lot of consulting, but at one point, I just realized, you know, the, the best way to make my own apps great and to focus more time on them is to just admit that they can't totally pay the bills and support my family and everything 100%, but maybe 50%, and then 50%, you know, something else, and or 30, 30, 30, you know, however you want to break it down. There's a few sources of revenue, and I, I decided I'd feel more comfortable if... I could do a little bit of everything to kind of um, add up to enough rather than just the, the kind of the stress and just the unknown you know, aspects of just having 100% full-time on my own apps, especially these days. You hear horror stories about the app store all the time. It's really difficult, and I feel like it would have been a bigger jump if I had just focused on that instead of embracing consulting and all that. That makes sense. So... What part of your consulting is I? What percentage, let's say, is iOS consulting, and what percentage is Mac consulting? Almost all iOS. I mean, this I don't think it's to surprise you or anyone. It's like so many people still want to build iPhone apps, right? And I'm, it's great because I I did this little bit of consulting, you know, years ago and off and on. Like I mentioned, that was that was almost all Mac uh, over the years, um, and so I wasn't really that familiar with the consulting world as it you know, as it's existed for the last handful of years since the App Store came out. And it was kind of nice to discover that, yes, there's still a bunch of people that are willing to, um, you know, give you a nice chunk of change to build an app for them. And a lot of those apps, sadly, they don't go anywhere or whatever, but there's still people that still want to build stuff. And that it's, I don't know, maybe jump in if I'm wrong, but it seems like there's still a lot of work to go around even now, which... I, I kind of it surprised me a little bit. I figured by now maybe some of the the craziness with the app store would have died down, and maybe work would be a lot harder to find than it used to be. That's been my experience, and it's interesting that you were in the Mac consulting world eight or nine years ago because my my guess would be that it wasn't that fertile a ground. Um, no, that, no, <laughs> right. Um, and so maybe what we're experiencing now is what. Um, people experienced in the Windows consulting world in the late 90s. Um, I, I don't know. I really don't know. But Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the funny thing about Mac consulting in the earlier days is that Mac developers were very rare, much more rare than they are now. But yeah, the demand for work I don't think was there. Like you would, you would have established development companies that would do, like example, what I just said, which is port like from Windows to the Mac. And you had that kind of thing, but it was, I think it was a small number. It wasn't anything like you have today with the iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. So how do you balance your time between working on 
your indie software business and doing consulting? Is it a struggle where, let's say one week you have a client project that just has a ton of to-dos on it and you get no time to actually work on your indie projects? Or is it more uh, that you actually select, okay, I'm going to have a schedule this today and I'm going to spend four hours on my contract work, four hours on my indie projects. How do you go about that? I'm still figuring that out. This has only been a few weeks really since I started doing this full time. And I'm still kind of settling into the right pattern. I think it'll change. Right now, I don't have a set rule other than I need to work on both those types of projects at least a little bit every week. That's kind of the just general rule. So maybe there's a client project that is super important and there's a deadline. And you know, like right now, I'm finishing something up for someone and like I really want to finish it. And there's a lot of work to do on it. But I still allow a little time during the week to work on one of my other apps, one of my other projects. And I, I like the balance of always being able to switch to something a little bit, especially if I'm working on something and I'm just not feeling productive or inspired, be able to switch gears a little bit, work on something else. But I don't have a set rule throughout the day. I probably should have more, uh, more structure, but right now it's just I, I kind of know what needs to be done. And as long as I make a little bit of time for both types of projects during the week, I think I'll, I think I'll be okay. Now, you've been getting into iOS consulting, you're saying, over the past couple of months, and has your celebrity in the community helped you in any way? Has that helped you find clients? <laughs> have they kind of come to you? How have you gone about finding clients getting into it? Well, I'm, I'm, first of all, I don't know about celebrity. I don't think, <laughs> thank you, but I don't think it's quite that. <laughs> I think that so. In the indie yet. community, when, you know, when I mentioned to a few people I know in the community, I'm going to be interviewing Manton Reese. Everybody knows who you are. Well, that's great. Thank you. That's that's nice to hear. Um, I guess it. So I haven't. So to, the start of that answer really is that um, I before I announced all this and before I had like this series of blog posts you mentioned about um, working for myself full time, I already had a project that I was working on um, mm-hmm. for a client uh, through a friend of mine that was doing some work. It's one of those like he has more work than he can handle kind of things, and that was something that I could be involved in. So I. I already kind of had enough work to keep myself busy uh, for the first little while. And so I didn't actively immediately on day one go out and start trying to find work. But I did, especially in reaction to some of the blog posts I had, I did get some random emails from people saying, you know, I have this project or, uh, you know, if you you need work or something, let me know. Maybe I can refer you to, you know, whatever. I got some really nice emails from people. And just like you, when you send me an email about being on the podcast, same kind of thing. Like I got some nice um, responses and you know questions and stuff from people that was just great to see. People that I guess have known the podcast or they just have read my blog. But right now, none of that has led to actual work. Um, and I, I think it's the kind of thing that I just – right now I need to get a lot better at lining up future work and you know having relationships with people and and – kind of putting the word out more about about things so that I obviously I'm very worried or still even you know that like two months from now I'm gonna just wake up and realize I have no projects I have no no income and so I I need to do a better job kind of setting that stuff up going forward Mm -hmm. and I'm still super new at this so I'm I expect to make a lot of mistakes over the next month or two and hopefully they will be so bad that I won't be able to recover from them and and keep going right and you mentioned how 
you estimate that you probably need to keep your income coming from multiple sources and contracting being a part of that, maybe 30 to 50%. Um, and so there's this whole concept of how do you pipeline the projects so that when one ends, you have another one right after that that starts. Uh, that's something that I've also struggled with over the last couple of years. And um, I have some friends who do it very well in, in iOS consulting, but it is about deal flow ultimately. So have you thought about it all how... Uh, you're going to market yourself, I guess, going forward as a consultant? Yeah, that's a great question because I don't even really have anything on my website that says, hey, hire me to do stuff. Whereas, you know, you look at a lot of people like, you know, your website and other people in the community that, you know, respect, it's like half their website or all their website is, you know, pitching themselves and saying, this is what I can give you and offer right. you. And I don't have that because I haven't, just that hasn't been, um, my business really up until now. So I, the first step is I probably need that. I, I probably need uh, a, a, an easier way for people to understand the types of apps that I like to build and that I can build for people and a way to get in touch. So yeah, the short answer is I haven't put enough thought into that yet, unfortunately, but I need to. I, need, I definitely need to do more on that. Uh, my website for my company is very bare bones. It needs to be really updated, and it has been needing that for a while. And, uh, yeah, just get better about lining up um, those projects. And, and also I need to remind myself that, you know, when I say I want to work, you know, this 50% of my time on this and 30% on this, whatever, I need to also allow some percentage of time for actually booking that future work and building those relationships with other people that, and other companies and um, that's not something that I've done a great job of yet, but hopefully I'll get better at it over the next few weeks and months. Right. And not to go into a tangent, but you famously are not on Twitter. I mean, you are, <laughs> right. but you're not, right? <laughs> and, yeah. And that hurts. I mean, to be honest, that really does hurt. It's it's uh, kind of a, it's not a huge sacrifice not being on Twitter, but it is a little bit of a business sacrifice because so many people are only on Twitter. And if you're not posting on Twitter and they're kind of, you're appearing in their timeline or whatever, they kind of forget you exist a little bit. <laughs> uh, luckily, I have a blog and I have a podcast, and you know I have other other ways that I can put myself out there and people to understand what I'm up to. But it is a little bit of a problem not being on Twitter. Now, I do have a like a company Twitter account. I have a bunch of Twitter accounts, and mm -hmm. most of them I don't use. Um, I don't tweet from my personal account at all. It's been you know almost a few years now that I've that I've tweeted from that, but I do occasionally tweet from my Riverfold at Riverfold account. Very rarely, but I don't have a rule against tweeting from that. I'm just not in the practice of doing it. I should probably build that up a little bit. It, I, it probably has no followers, but I should probably start using that a little more for my business. Right. Right. Well, let me ask you this. You're a very experienced Mac and iOS programmer, but more recently getting into iOS consulting. Uh, how much, if a consultant, if, excuse me, if a client came to you and said, I really want to build this new app in this specific way from a technical standpoint, and you didn't agree with that technical decision or that technical avenue, would you battle with them about it? Uh, is, is it, let's say, I, I know that uh, there's you know a lot of talk about to go swift, to not go swift, right? And, and you guys have talked about that on Core Intuition. If you had a client come to you and say, you know, I, I want you to build this app for me, but I really want you to do it in Swift. And you were like, you know what, I'm not sure I want to build that app in Swift. W would you take on the project? That's interesting. I think my, my first reaction to it would probably be to say, I would love to work on this, but honestly, I'm not the best person because 
unless it's a very large project that has a lot of time for me to become an expert on Swift, I, I just don't think it would be a good use of everybody's time. I mean, I, I in, a, in a way, I'd like kind of maybe a project to come along like that because mm-hmm. that's probably what it would take for me to actively be using Swift day to day. But at the same time, I don't know if I feel totally comfortable taking that on when there's probably a lot of other people that have been doing Swift now for six months or longer and, you know, they could get up and running quicker. So an example is that actually, you know, someone emailed me, um, you know, getting back to what you were talking about earlier, you know, someone emailed me about a potential project and it seemed really fascinating but it was a little more web and scripting type stuff and, and they ideally wanted it done in Python and I know Python okay, I guess, but I never use it really. Uh, like Ruby is what I do all my server stuff with. And so my first reaction to that was maybe, maybe I'm not the best person, you know, for that. Like if they had, if they had had the same kind of project, but it was exactly the types of tools and languages I already use, maybe I would be a little quicker to jump on it. Um, so I, you know, it's, I mean, that's my first reaction is just to make sure that I'm actually a good fit for, for right. the project. And maybe a, Maybe I can afford to be a little picky now. Maybe in a couple months I won't be able to be picky at all. Maybe I will need to just accept anything that could possibly come my way. Uh, but right now, I, I definitely want to make sure it's a good fit for everybody. As far as like battling, I had my experience so far has been I'm I don't think I'm in a great position to battle. Um, clients can often they can be kind of stubborn. They can kind of have an idea of what they want to do. I I am not so far felt that. I could just go in and say, no, I really think you should do it this way, even when I have a strong kind of difference of opinion. Uh, at a normal job, uh, I would be a lot more comfortable saying, you know, no, this is, we should do it this way, and we can have a debate about this, and we can talk about the design or the architecture for it. With the client project, for some reason, I've felt a little more comfortable just kind of going with the flow. And even if the app itself is suffering a little bit, Mostly because I just don't, you know, I'm trying to get through the work, trying to make the client happy. And unless, again, unless there's a lot of padding built into the project or it's a big project, uh, if I have start too many battles <laughs> over the design of the, the app or the direction or something, that ends up just burning a lot of hours that uh, so far, at least in the, in the last month, I haven't felt comfortable doing. And maybe battle was too strong a word, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you're a very experienced developer in the iOS and Mac world. So what I meant more is that you have to have the client trust your experience at some point, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've had the experience actually where clients have now been requesting projects only in Swift. And I felt like I can't really push back that much because Mm. um, it's, it's such a, a buzzword right now that, that, and people think that's the only way forward on some projects if I want it to be maintained years down the line. And they might not really know what they're talking about because they're not developers themselves. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that I, I've, there's a pro, there is a project this year, for example, that I did in Swift that I would not have chosen to do in Swift if I had made the decision myself, even though I like Swift and I'm definitely embracing Swift. Um, so I, I think that this Ooh. might be maybe this will be your albatross. I don't know getting into <laughs> getting into Swift, but I, I think yeah. so you have obviously a lot more um, years of, of experience than I do. So I think you can push back more than I do. That's why I thought it was an interesting question. Maybe that is really that is really interesting, and I haven't hit that yet with Swift, so I can't exactly say what would happen. 
Yeah, part of the problem with Swift too is that it's changing so quickly still. Yes. Like even with you know we're at two point now, but there's still things changing. You know, and and pretty much every Xcode you know beta it feels like so even if they're small things, things are changing. And I feel kind of bad for a client to be honest if they put like a lot of money into an app like six months ago and then yes. their code doesn't compile anymore and then they've got to rehire that programmer or something. Like, especially if it's one of these one-off things where the project lasts you know, two or three months and then they're done and then they discover six months later that it's become a maintenance problem. It's a little different if that you have a longer relationship with someone where you know you're going to be actively working with this client over the whole year or something. But that that does seem like a little bit of a gotcha with Swift right now. I don't know. Have you... Have you seen any problems with that, with the work that you did? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So we, I, I'm working on a project right now um, that is built in Swift 1.2 and Swift, you know, the project's not released yet, but Swift 2.0 is not quite here in final release form, but it is here in that a lot of, let's say, open source projects, even some that we're utilizing within this project um, are already switching over to Swift 2. So... Yeah, now we're kind of stuck on Xcode 6.4, and the project will probably, by the time it's released, my guess now is that Swift uh, 2.0 and Xcode 7 will be out in final release form. So do we still release under 1.2? Um, do, do we take a few weeks to upgrade everything? Exactly what you were saying. I mean, it, it, it is an issue with how, how fast the language is evolving and how fast the uh, tooling is evolving around it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's the kind of thing. If it was your own app, you would probably say, "Well, we gotta just, you know, we gotta upgrade it to 2.0 so yeah. that we can maintain it better. We can use, like you said, shared code." But when it's someone else's app, if that changes the schedule, because that's not something you you had when you when you first started on the project right. and there was a schedule for it and everything, you probably didn't account for you know <laughs> weeks extra of. You know, maybe it's not weeks, but you know, even days right. or it's, a week it's extra. Not, let's, yeah, I mean, it's 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 probably a day or two, but still, yeah. you know, it it, it can <laughs> be. It it depends, right? Because now there are all these open source dependencies, so you can't have. Unfortunately, you can't have half the code base in Swift 1.2 and some of the open source. Excuse me, in 2.0 and some of the open source projects still in 1.2 because they won't compile. So, are you going to go manually update some of those projects that haven't been updated yet it's it's the usual kind of uh dependency hell right yeah exactly it's hard to predict exactly what's going to happen when you start unraveling all those i did start so i'm working on one project that and last week maybe two weeks ago i found some swift shared code that i wanted to use it was going to save me some time and and I didn't mean to like seek out Swift code. I was just seeking out some code at all. And the Swift one looked popular, and it kind of came up. And I integrated it, and I had to change a couple little things, the interface with Objective C the way I needed it to, or whatever. But it was it saved me a lot of time. I was really happy, and I thought, ah, this is it. You know, I'm finally using some Swift. And and then I realized when the build server broke that was on Xcode six point four that like. This requires seven. I've been using seven mostly day to day Xcode seven mm -hmm. to to build my projects, and, and I just I realized like this this Swift code doesn't build on the, the the you know the shipping version of Xcode, and now what I do, and so kind of looked at the schedule, and this app is supposed to be submitted to the App Store before I expect Swift two and the new Xcode tools will be GM. And, you know, it's going to, it's supposed to ship like a week before Apple has the rumored, you know, new iPhone event or whatever. And I assume that the stuff will start becoming final around that time. 
And so I just realized there's no way I can I use this code because I don't want, you know, I don't want to get a day before releasing to the App Store and, you know, I, I can't actually release it because Apple doesn't accept anything with built with beta tools. And so it didn't, it didn't waste a lot of time, but I ended up reverting it and using an Objective-C version and, and, and went along my way. And so <laughs> the, uh, it was just kind of a small story about what could play out on a long, larger kind of scale if, if you're all in on Swift. Yeah, absolutely. So looking at the big picture, what's been your biggest challenge so far in getting into iOS consulting? I think just getting better about estimating work. Um, you know, that, that's something I've always been bad at. You know, all programmers are fairly bad at this, but just trying to stop myself when I give an estimate or I approve someone else's kind of best guess at what the project is going to take. I, I need to stop myself more when I realize that my estimate is assuming that everything is going perfectly fine. Like, you know, when I say this is going to take two months, that assumes that I'm working every day and I don't hit any bugs or snags or, you know, APIs don't change or things don't break or, you know, new crazy features and bugs, you know, come up. And so I'm, I'm still not very good at that. I think I'm going to have to get quite a bit better at that so that I don't end up spending twice as many hours as I thought, uh, especially with – so the couple of things that I've been working on lately are like fixed price kind of uh, project. So it's like I'm not tracking my hours exactly. I'm, I kind of roughly know how much time I'm spending, but it's a flat cost. This is how much I'm being paid to work on this. This is a, basically the schedule. And that's great when everything goes smoothly, but when things go poorly, of course, you run into a big problem where you could put a lot more time into the project than you expected. Right. And that was actually going to be my next question for you, whether you're working on a, a fixed price basis or on an hourly basis. And I've seen consultants go both ways. I Personally, I work on a fixed price basis, and I've had a lot of friends tell me that that's crazy, that um, how can I be doing that, and you, software development is too unpredictable to work that way. But I actually see a lot of other consultants also work on, on a fixed price basis. So uh, I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts of why you started working on a fixed price basis. So... You know, I think depending on the project, I think either can work. And not just the project, but also the, the team or the developer that's working on it. I am really bad about tracking hours. And in the past, I've, I've done both. Uh, this, this client I mentioned that I was doing Mac software for uh, starting years ago, at one time I was, I was tracking hours. And I found that I would really, I would really be underbilling because I, I, I wasn't tracking you know, as precisely as I really needed to be. Um, and I would feel bad if the hours were too much. I mean, which I shouldn't, of course. I'm working, you know, uh, this amount, and I'm charging, you know, a fair rate. And um, but I just, I just wasn't very good at it. And I feel like with a fixed price, first of all, I don't have to worry about that as much. Of course, you have other problems about, you know, underestimating the time it's going to take and whatnot. But um, I feel like it's a little easier also for the client because they know they are not going to be charged double if something goes wrong, you know, and, but, but again, it's just the planning has to be better. And also, um, you have to be better about reacting to potential changes when the client says, Oh, I really want this small change. And that small change actually is like a new feature that's going to require an extra two weeks, you know, pushing back on that and saying, okay, we have to, we have to add money and time to the project to make this this work. In the past, I've been really bad about you know saying, okay, that's just a little small thing. I'll just go ahead and do that. 
But those add up, those couple small things here and there, and all of a sudden you're spending much more time uh, than you thought. So that's something I just need to, need to get better about. But I, in general, I like Fix. Just I feel it's a little less stressful for everyone, um, a little more predictable too. And if, if the project is done sooner, um, potentially you get maybe paid more than you would have uh, otherwise. So it just depends on the project. <clears throat> so we, we talked about your biggest challenge. What's been the biggest joy of doing consulting? You know, it's something surprising, actually. I, I haven't thought about this too much, but my first thought when you asked that question just now was getting better at mm-hmm. programming. Because there's actually, I've discovered there's nothing like starting projects and finishing them and then starting a new one and finishing them to get better at a lot of things that I really wasn't that great at before. And you know, I, I say I've been programming the Mac for years and years and years, decades, basically. I say I've been programming the iPhone for, you know, a long time. But those are those are just a small number of apps over a long number of years. And I don't know, there's something about starting fresh that I feel like I'm improving. I, mean, I feel like I'm a much better iPhone developer now than I was like a month or two ago even. Um, you know, it's like you start over, there's a fresh project. You, you, you know the mistakes you made, you know, two weeks ago and you know not to make them again, you know, so you fix that kind of thing and the architecture of the app. Uh, you're starting fresh a lot of time with new modern APIs, which is wonderful, you know, being able to say, yeah, we're starting this new project, it's going to require iOS 8, you know, and, and later only, that's really refreshing compared to an older app that I'm maintaining for a while and it still needs to work. Like I, my, one of my apps, Tweet Library, I think I still support back to iOS 5, you know, and so there's a lot of old code in there. Um, that's just, uh, you know, it's not fun to work on. Right, right. It's not fun to maintain that stuff. Um, and it's also investing time in an old API that's been deprecated for two years or something. It's not wasted time, but it, it's almost wasted time because it's not a skill set that you can take forward to new projects as easily. That's interesting. Let me ask you, how many users do you have on Tweet Library that are using iOS 5 or iOS 6 even? Because Apple stats show that something like, Ninety uh, percent of you, over ninety percent users, are on iOS seven and above. Yeah, I haven't checked recently, and this is an app I'm kind of winding down anyway. Um, I was actually planning on pulling it from the App Store before now, but it's still there, and people still buy it, so I'm kind of reluctant mm-hmm. to pull it. But, uh, but uh, the reason I still support iOS five, if I do, I actually need to check that I didn't bump it to six. But the reason was that the app started um, with the iPad one. Oh, okay, was, sure. Yeah. yeah, it was an iPad-only app when I first shipped it. And now it's a universal app, works on both. But the, that's the big problem with that first iPad, right, is it can't go past iOS 5, which right. seems crazy, but it's, you know, the old iPad. It's kind of slow. And, um, and so I felt really bad about cutting off those original users that were really supportive of the app. Um, and I'm sure you're right. I'm sure if I looked at the stats that it's almost nobody. Uh, and it might be approaching nobody. And so obviously it's not really worth a lot of time to maintain that for almost nobody. But at the same time, it's that kind of thing where you're working on it. And if there's no good reason to cut off those people, maybe just keep them around. That's a decision I made maybe a year ago or something when I was working on a new feature. And today, if I was working on a brand new version, I would probably... I would probably I would probably go iOS eight and up or seven and up. I would probably cut off the last you know those last couple older versions. Yeah, I mean that's the only thing I ever hear about is I want to support iPad one. That's why I'm still 
writing yeah. for these these old. That's the only yeah. sane reason, and even that reason's not <laughs> super great. <laughs> yeah. So it was interesting. You mentioned that a couple of the projects you're working on right now, you, you describe them as one-off projects. What do you mean by that? Uh, I guess what I meant is just that I'm not. I don't plan on working on these projects after 1.0 is done. I see. So it's a, a you know client wants this thing built, and maybe it's a, a startup or something. They've got this great idea for an app. They need the first version built, and then if it takes off, maybe they'll have their own team. Um, or they'll have, you know, it'll be a bigger thing. And so the, the stuff I'm working on right now, I don't expect to work on after the first version ships. I might be wrong, um, but, but there's no plan to do that, right? It's the plan is spend, you know, three months working on this. Here's the designs. Here's, you know, here's how the app's going to work. And then we'll plan the next version later. That's not, that's not really on the radar. So these are MVPs. That would be fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, in some cases, not very minimal. I mean, there's one project, you know, getting back to bad estimates, you know, I was like, sure, this project could be done. And this is something I started in my kind of spare time before I was full-time independent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it's one of those, I was super optimistic about how fast I could, I could ship this app, but in hindsight, this app's like half, you know, it's like all of Instagram plus all of Foursquare plus all of these three other apps put together with dozens and dozens of screens. It's like, it's a really big app in hindsight. And it was, uh, you know, really long project. So uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't call that one minimal. There's something very big about that first 1.0 for that particular one. Right. But so at the same time, you're not sure you'll be the programmer necessarily building on top of these, but you're not saying that you expect if someone else takes them over that they'll be rewriting them from scratch, right? I hope not. Yeah, right, right. It's not a prototype. Like, I feel like it's more than a prototype. I mean, it's a real app you could ship in the store. Right, Uh, right, right. And you could, I mean, it's going to, all apps are going to need some kind of maintenance. But no, I I would be, I would feel bad if someone had to go in and, and rewrite it. I mean, certainly there are parts of, you know, the app that I'm really proud of and there's other parts that are like, ah, if I were going to redo that, you know, I'd improve the architecture of that a little bit. Um, it, you know, as I said a minute ago, it's like, I like the kind of refreshing aspect of starting a new app, learning from my mistakes and kind of carrying that forward. And, uh, I've tried a couple things on this app that I thought were a good idea and, you know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe yeah, again, if I were to redo it, maybe I would do things a little differently. But for the most part, I'm, I'm really proud of it. And yeah, I would, it would be, I'd feel really terrible if someone had to go completely gut the app and, and start over. But you never know. Sometimes you know, when you let an app go, you know, it's, sometimes you just got to, you know, whatever they need to do is what they, what they need to do. Um, same thing when I left my job, you know, after 14 plus years, it's like, you know, I try to get this code in the best position for you guys, but if you have to gut it and do things differently, I mean, you know, you just do, do what you have to do. Right. And then it just becomes about documenting for whoever takes it over, right? I mean, you, mm-hmm. you have deadlines, you have timelines, and you, you have to get a release out. And when you're thinking about who might look at this code later, you want it to be as clean as possible. But the, I guess the, the number one thing you can do for that future person is, is well documented, at least... That's yeah, that's a experience. great point. That's yeah. a great point for sure. Um, so before I let you go, let, let's talk a little bit about Riverfold software. So I, I, a couple apps I want to actually ask you about, um, and this, this one's an old one that you don't even advertise anymore, but WeTransfer seemed like such a good app. How come, <laughs> uh, 
how, how come that that kind of seemed like it kind of died off your radar a little bit? Um, it, it would seem like it would be something that would be super popular. Yeah, you know, it actually was the most popular app that I that I probably have ever had at Riverfold. And you know, when I said uh, that, like, I'm kind of hesitant to pull Tweet Library from the store because people still buy it. Mm-hmm. For some reason, even though people still bought WeTransfer, I decided I, I needed to stop working on it and stop selling it. And I, I may have stopped a little too soon with that app. But basically, the, the reason I stopped selling it is, it's first of all, it's a complicated app in terms of how it's built. Like it, I, I'm really proud of how simple the UI was and how easy. I feel like it made things possible. There was no other way. You just couldn't do stuff like without my app if you wanted to do this particular thing. Like, like uh, you know, if you're familiar with the Wii, you have the little me, sure. you know, characters you can create. And you, with my app, you could sync your Bluetooth, you know, your your Wii remote to your Mac with my app, and it would render, you know, your your me characters, and you could save them as JPEGs or whatever. It's like yeah, try cool. doing that without my app. I mean, you could maybe figure out how, but um, difficult. So I was really proud of some of that stuff. Um, and it still sold, but I kind of I reached a point where I wanted to work on different types of apps. I wanted to work on apps that had this theme of like archiving and search, um, blogging related things. And I felt like WeTransfer it was kind of a fun a fun app, and it was kind of kind of nifty, but it didn't really fit that theme. It didn't it didn't feel like important in the in the big scheme of things. Like. And, and that's, I don't know, maybe I'm selling it short a little bit, but it just didn't, it just didn't seem like it fit with the types of things I wanted to work on. Um, and also, and I, I glossed over this second when I said it's complicated, but it was hard to support too, because it did a lot of different things. And some of them were kind of, uh, there was a lot of things that could go wrong. So like one of the things that could stream video to your TV through the Wii and lots of things can go wrong with that. You know, you got weird routers and network problems. And uh, so it was a, it was a little bit, higher cost of supporting the app. Um, so for those two reasons, I decided to stop selling it. And it might have been a little too soon. People still bought it. Even after I stopped selling it, people would email me asking, you know, how to buy it. And I ended up just, I would just give them a free serial number for the app and let them download it, which, you know, is kind of a, you know, I'm happy to do that. You know, I'm happy to let you use the app for free because I'm not supporting it anymore. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like this part of me that was saying, you know, I just missed a sale. Like I could have, I could have sold the app to this person, and also I uh, wouldn't have had to email them. Like it would have been all automated. So yeah, I don't know. I think it might, I might have stopped selling a little before its time, but it was a really fun app. I'm proud of what it did at the time, and just kind of moved on from it, I guess. Another app I want to ask you about is Sunlit. Um, very beautiful app, and I, I remember the story of when it came out. There was actually a similar app that came out at almost the same time. Um, and that that similar app, the name escapes me. But uh, Storehouse um, was store, the app. right. Yeah. Storehouse, Storehouse. So, what's kind of been the story of Sunlit over the past? I guess it's been a year or two since since it was released. God, it might have been that long already. Yeah, uh, the story is basically that it didn't live up to expectations in terms of sales, but uh, we were really proud of the app. I worked on it uh, with my friend Jonathan Hayes, um, who now also has uh, you know his own you know consulting type company and we we loved the idea for the app we thought it was going to be great and i was really into the app.net service at the time so we built the authentication on that we built all the syncing architecture on that and you know it just it didn't 
either because the app.net restriction was kind of holding it back a little yeah. or for other reasons, it just didn't, didn't really take off quite enough to justify a lot of time on it. Um, but I really like the app and it's I actually put some app. time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just uh, like a few months ago, or maybe even less than that, I, I took some time to update it a little bit and um, I removed the app.net support uh, for new customers. You can sign in with Flickr, uh, Yahoo instead. And I cleaned up a couple things, and I still feel like it it could have a future. I mean, there's still a lot we want to do with the app, but it's not the kind of app that I can justify working on every day, unfortunately. But it's I think it's the kind of thing we'll we'll keep selling, we'll keep improving. It's just not going to improve as quickly as as we'd like. It might be there'll be a, a minor release, you know, you know, maybe once or twice a year, but it's not going to. It's not going to take over the world. Uh, it was funny with the timing. Storehouse was the app that came out literally on the same day. And those guys are great. They have a great team. The app is beautiful. But we were shocked and surprised that it was, uh, the, the idea at least was similar and it came out on the same day. It's just total coincidence. Yeah. But um, there, it's a different model. Like ours, you know, it's kind of like a small app that we built and, you know, you can. You can try it for free, or you can pay five dollars to unlock you know all the features. And their model is more of the startup venture capital. You know, our app is totally free. We're going to figure out how to make money at some point. We just need to build users and awareness and stuff. So, model business model is completely different. But the idea of collecting photos and stories together and sharing them is similar. Right, right. I mean, it sounds like it was a pretty bad coincidence in terms of sales probably for both of you, for both Sunlit and Storehouse, to have that kind of split. Um, let, let me ask you this. Obviously, in retrospect, bundling with App.net was uh, probably bad because App.net didn't really make it, right? Um, yeah. But if do you think you made the right decision at the time? Not in ter- Not knowing, let's say you went back in time and you still didn't know whether or not App.net was going to make it. Um, and let's even say that maybe app.net did make it. Would you still have done it with, with app.net? That's a great question. I think, I think it was probably the, I don't know. I, feel, I felt good about the decision because I was a big fan of what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And there were also some incentives to being an app.net developer because at the time they had um, – a certain amount of money every month, and I believe it started at twenty thousand dollars and went up to thirty thousand dollars. So a lot, a lot of money, really, that they split uh, with third-party developers based mm-hmm. on usage, and this really justified the, all the time that, like, the Tweetbot, you know, folks spent uh, doing Netbot, their version of Tweetbot for for App.net, yeah. uh, Repost, same thing. You know, it's like those apps they don't sell well because the market was really small, but with that extra money where you get a check from app.net every month, like that really helped justify the time. Unfortunately for us, we had basically one month of that. And then app.net about a month after we shipped Summit 1.0 stopped doing the developer incentive program. And so that was a bummer. Like if that had kept going for another six months or a year, even though our slice of that money was very small compared to everybody else, um, that would have helped justify you know, the time. So it just bad timing. Yeah. I mean, if I really think that they did something amazing with what they were building, like no one has been that successful at building a kind of a Twitter like service Mm -hmm. that's more open than they have. But timing was just really bad for us, uh, with, with Sunland and also 
that extra burden of requiring an app.net login definitely hurt. You know, when we looked at stats, I think about, we lost about half our downloads right off the bat before people could log in. You know, it's like, right. like if 10 people download the app, only five managed to log in because of that requirement. So, and then, and then you have some smaller percentage that actually pay. So really cuts down yeah, the revenue for something like that. Yeah, that, 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 that does make sense to me. Um, let me ask you this. Since you worked on Sunlit with a partner, are you considering working on future consulting projects where you build out a team or do you see yourself mostly as a solo consultant? I don't, I'd be happy to work with another team, but I don't think I'm the person to build out a team myself, no. I don't think I'd be great at it and it's not something that I'm super interested in doing long term. Like, I, I think I'll always be doing consulting at, at some level, but if I was ever at the point where I was doing so much consulting that I needed a team, that would mean that my other apps were not being worked on, probably. Uh, and so I, I mean, maybe not. I mean, I, I could see a scenario where you'd have a team of people and you worked on both consulting and regular projects, but I'm having trouble imagining that scenario right now. You said nobody has built a open Twitter, but you've kind of been hinting on your blog that you're working on some kind of microblogging service. I, I know you, you probably want to keep it under wraps soon, but is that kind of the spear of, of what you're working on? Yeah, that's yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I should have said no one yet. <laughs> right, right. That's what I was thinking. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not ready, totally ready to announce it, but I'm actually very close um, to, to sending out a beta. I have a, a list of people that I'm interested in. The, the app, even though they don't know exactly what it is, uh, that I'm going to uh, send out an email to really soon, hopefully the next week. And I have a couple people testing it. But yeah, the idea is not so much build a Twitter competitor, but like encourage people to think about the idea of microblogging on their own site, posting on their own site first before just putting all their content into the Twitter and the Facebooks of the world where you don't really control it and you can't really get it out as easily. Yeah. Um, and so we encourage people to write on their own site, but the problem with writing on your own site is that you're this blog and, you know, the ocean, and you, you don't have the integrated experience of something like Twitter has. So could we build a service that connects all that stuff together so that you, you, you post on your own site potentially and you have a microblog along with your full blog posts, um, but you integrate them together to have more of a timeline experience. So that's kind of, that's kind of part of what I'm working on. That makes so much sense. And um, again, maybe you don't want to disclose yet, but is there also going to be a companion iPhone app that, that helps you do this from your phone? Yep, yep, yep. It's, uh, the iPhone app's actually coming along pretty well. I, I wasn't totally sure I'd get it done in time to ship, but I, I kind of decided I needed an iPhone version at the beginning. Other services have uh, launched, like uh, Ello, got a lot of publicity right. on you remember that one? Yeah, I was and, on that, yeah. Yeah, and they spent, I don't know, six to nine months or something coming out with an iPhone version. I thought that really, they really hurt themselves by doing that because yes. just when everyone was super excited about it, they had no mobile, like, you know, solution or whatever. So, yeah, um, so yeah on day one, I'll have an iPhone app and then the website and a full open API and everything. And um, the iPhone app is very... Very bare bones, but I think it's clean and simple, and it does the job as like the first app, and hopefully other people will build other things. You know, we'll see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is there any interesting part of your consulting business that we didn't really talk about today? Oh, I think we covered a lot, actually. Um, I think, I mean, you were talking about challenging stuff, and I, I mentioned, you know, estimates. One other thing that, that came to mind is uh, working in different time zones. 
mm-hmm. has been a little bit of adjustment too. Like I'm working on an app where the server, you know, the person working on the server component and the API is elsewhere in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. being on chat and just kind of juggling times people are working and, and you make a change, the kind of the longer cycle of working with someone who may be not working for the next four hours or eight hours or something. That's right. been a little bit interesting too. I'm not quite as used to that. I've, I'm used to working on a distributed team, but it's always been, you know, one time zone away or whatever. Yeah. How have you been managing that challenge? Do you send kind of just a, a long email at the end of the day <laughs> or <laughs> how, how do you, how do you keep in sync? You know, not a long email. For the most part, it's just been the usual stuff that I'm already used to, which is, you know, a bug tracking system of some kind. Mm-hmm. And chat. So in this case, it's Jira, which I'm not a super fan of, but it's, it's what the client's using. And um, and Slack, which I am a big fan of. I really like what Slack is doing. And so for the most part, it's just the usual stuff with that, like using tools that are kind of you know asynchronous, and you know you don't you don't have to be online exactly the same time, and you could still catch up. Yeah, that makes sense. So if clients want to get in touch with you about consulting, how should they reach out to you? Great question. I guess just send me an email, uh, manton at riverfold.com. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I, like I said, my website doesn't have anything about consulting on it. So you can visit it all you want, but <laughs> I, I don't, uh, you know, until I have something there, it won't really uh, tell a very good story. Riverfold.com, right? And that's also where people should check out your other apps, right? Yeah, that's a good place to start. Um, my blog is manton.org, M-A-N-T-O-N.org. I've been blogging there for a long time, a dozen years or so. And um, so you can you know, see what I'm up to. And also, if you're curious, go back to all the <laughs> old bad ideas and mistakes that I've made in the past. Well, Manson, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's really been a real pleasure to talk to you about your consulting business and also Riverfold. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really good. This is super interesting for me, just kind of new, more or less, to consulting. I'm learning a lot. It's it's been good. Thanks for listening. Remember to leave us a review on iTunes. And if you have an idea for a great guest on the podcast, reach out to me. I'm at Dave Kopeck on Twitter. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. See you next time, everyone.